the approach is to take them where they're at and help them with a particular matter and try to support a practice, a sustainable practice. That's really the fundamental. So if you're a public artist and you get your first contract, that means you got a gig, you got a commission. So that's a, that's a sign or can be a sign of a practice that is, you know, evolving. Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other entrepreneurs about how they hustle their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Spivey. I'm a BFA MBA hybrid. It's kind of like salt and pepper, you know. You need that. Uh, you need the spiciness of being an artist, but you know, you also need that salt because without the uh, without the uh, the iodine of business, you you might get a goiter. I don't know. Have you seen a goiter? You, you don't want that. I'm not here to talk about salt and pepper. I'm here to talk about business and art. And I'm talking to you right now from inside the mobile incubator. It's a rolling recording studio inside a vintage camper trailer that travels across the U.S. It's super beautiful, and it's towed by a pretty legit 1973 ambulance. And today it's parked at The Record Company in South Boston, and I'm talking with Jim Grace, Executive Director of Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston, and the volunteer lawyers for the arts chapter up here. Now, remember last episode <laughs> when I confessed to smashing the Fourth Amendment? Well, now that we're talking to another lawyer, I've got another crime that I needed to confess to. And I committed it in the name of art. So I had a gallery called 17 Cox. We did a lot of fun stuff there. It looked kind of like a firehouse building from the outside, like from Ghostbusters. It was like a two-story installation art space with a garage down below. It was awesome. Definitely check it out at 17cox.com. Uh, that's Cox spelled C-O-X. Anyway, the landlord told me it was zoned center commercial, meaning that it was zoned for commercial dealings on the ground floor, hence a gallery, and residential upstairs. But guess what? It was not. It was not zoned that way at all. In fact, it was only zoned for storage. Guess how I know that? I know that because the city inspector said so when he came to shut us down. But it there was kind of no harm, no foul because, well, actually there was a foul, but not so much harm because we already announced that we were closing like a couple of weeks after that. So anyway, lesson learned there is that uh, ignorance of the law is not an excuse. The city inspector doesn't care. And uh, when you break the law, powers that be, they have to enforce it regardless of whether you knew what you were allowed to do or not. So do your homework. But you're going to listen in on this and that's how you're going to do your homework. Yeah, yeah. That's how you're going to do your homework. Jim's going to talk today about some space issues for artists in Boston and all around the U.S. Now, I've known Jim for years, and this guy has some of the deepest knowledge on arts entrepreneurship in the country. He knows firsthand what it's like to build a business in the arts because his first major project as an artist ended up in an international legal settlement. Hmm. Let's tune in. My name is Jim Grace, and I'm the executive director of the Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston. Grew up in Connecticut in a small town called South Windsor, Connecticut. It's about 20 minutes outside of Hartford. It's kind of a rural, combination rural town. Small town, yeah, about 20,000. A lot of farmland. It abuts the Connecticut River, so there's a lot of tobacco farming and those kind of things. Tobacco farming in Connecticut? Toba yes, tobacco. Connecticut broadleaf is the tobacco on the outside of all the best cigars in the world. And then they ship it to uh, the Caribbean, and that's where the cigars are made. Did not smoke it, but I did pick the leaves. 
when I was 14, 15, and 16. Jim Grace started as a tobacco farmer. That's right. Tobacco picker. You were either a picker or a dragger. I was a picker. What's the difference? One picks and the other drags it. What did your folks do? School teacher and uh, my father was a, a, a lawyer in town. I ended up actually being a lawyer, so it was one of those. I used to volunteer in his office and work in his office and stuff, so it was something that was always kind of part of the part of my world, people calling late at night. Is that kind of a hallmark of a father who's an attorney? <laughs> well, no, just, you know, if, if kids get arrested or things happen, you know, they always have to call their lawyers, so it's mm. just part of the. And also he was on boards, and he was a very active member of the community and volunteered a lot, so I definitely imprinted the idea of community service and being part of the community and helping people was definitely, definitely imprinted. So you saw him being an attorney almost associated with being a, like a member of the community? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And also, you know, volunteering on boards. And now I'm, you know, doing board work and teaching boards how to, you know, actively be engaged. So, yeah, there's definitely pieces of that 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 are part of what I do today, absolutely. And then your mother was a school teacher. I mean, there's a great deal of what of education to what you do today. Oh, absolutely, yeah. She was a home ec teacher, actually, so the kind of the love of cooking and food and everything definitely came from that kind of Italian side of the family. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, we all played instruments. We were all, you know, doing that as kids. None of us were actually that good, but we all had it as part of our life. Brother played trumpet. Tell us what you played. The accordion. All right. a (laughs) A fact that I think this is the only time I've ever said that out loud, so... And my sister, I think, played, She, I don't know what she played. She played different instruments over the years. Your parents played? Father was a trumpet player, yeah. And my mother was an accordion player. She was actually quite good. Well, I knew that I wanted to work for nonprofits. Um, so I graduated and then went directly to a low-income housing bank, actually, and was in-house counsel there for about four years. Yeah, so they had five or six in-house lawyers. And so I, that's what I did for after graduating. So I worked as a low-income housing lawyer and was great. I traveled the state and got to go to different housing developments and they had an administrative judge role where you went and people were being evicted or uh, rejected for housing. They had had the right to a hearing. They had the right to hear to make sure that the reason for their rejection or their eviction was proper. And so I did those um, all over the state and got to meet interesting people. And especially being in my early 20s at that time, it was definitely an experience to see different aspects of the state and meet a lot of people and kind of appreciate you know, the issues of diversity, inclusion, and the effects of poverty. And a lot of these issues were systemic and endemic. And so it was definitely, it was an eye-opening experience and a good experience, especially that that I've, I've taken a lot of those lessons and those experiences into my nonprofit. So after four years there... Yeah, so I had written and and sold some book ideas while I was there. And so one of the books that I sold is a series of books with my kind of writing partner was this book called The Moving Two Guides. And we did four books and, and produced them. And then ultimately, the idea was that your first six months in a new city, it would be kind of your guide. It would be your best friend saying, oh, that's a great coffee shop, or that's the great cleaners you should go to. And this is where you should, this is how to work the transportation system. So this is kind of pre, you know, obviously pre-internet, L.A., Chicago, New York, and D.C., and those books were all printed in the warehouses, and we got sued by a Canadian publishing company. Actually hired local writers in each of the cities. We produced them. We got them printed. We did all the design. Four cities, books in the warehouse, 150,000, because it was four cities. The publisher didn't clear the title to the book, and so it held up the book two years in the warehouse. So a Canadian company had the same exact title? Yeah, and had registered both in Canada and the United States. 
So that gave them the power. So that was my first introduction to the world of arts, law, issues. And because of that experience, when I saw the job for the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, they were hiring an executive director. That experience definitely made me understand the need for affordable, quality legal services for the arts. And I took the job. What happened to the books? Books sat in the warehouse for two years. It took us two years to negotiate. The books were then old. But then, obviously, the, when the Internet started to pick up, a lot of this stuff became redundant. You didn't really need you know, a lot of the stuff you could just search and do. So, But, yeah, that was the whole concept. So I had a, almost a career in publishing, but for one day. I did it on the side, yeah. It was my hustle, my side hustle. And then you get done, and then do two years go by? or I had produced a couple other books during that time, too. So we didn't just stop with that, but we did... We did like a dating book, and then we did a book called The Best Man's Handbook. and So kind of funny, irreverent guidebooks was kind of our shtick. What were the titles of the books? Art of Spooning. Jim uh, Grace wrote the book on spooning. Yeah, that's what we say. Are you a good spooner? Yes, of course, I wrote the book. I can actually say that. How many people can say they wrote the book? Best Man's Handbook, Good Deed Guide. What inspired you... It was mostly just seeing it, living it. It was just, you know, everyone is a life stage book. You know, you, you're dating, you're getting married, you know, you're going to a ton of weddings in your 20s, you know, you're having kids in your 30s or whatever. You know, most of these are just books based on, hey, some I'm doing it, I should take notes. It's just a side kind of hustle. The side just kept me, my creative side. You told me about one called... Baby Gami. Baby Gami, yeah. So that was in the hospital. It was the day my first child, my daughter, was born. And the, or watching the nurse swaddle a baby, I was like, that's fantastic. Because, of course, I have no idea how to do it. It's my first kid. And so I wrote a note. I put it in a napkin, put it in my pocket. I said, that's a book. Had this whole concept of a, of a blanket and it numbered and everything else. But it turned out to be more of a, a guidebook. Are you working with other content creators on it? producer yourself or you can sell it to somebody else so some of these are they're all over the place it was fun it was just a fun way and it gave me a, an opportunity to like i said do the creative side while you know doing other things and it's funny because in some ways my career has for the last 20 years so it's my 20th anniversary this year working with with artists and arts organizations it's informed by my experiences doing these deals working with artists working with publishers working with you know different creative professionals so what attracted you to the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts? Well, it wasn't necessarily attraction in the sense that I had experienced what it was like to create something and then have a legal issue completely sideline it. So, you know, but for that lawsuit, I probably would still be in publishing. So I appreciate the consequence and the, the critical re relationship to the business side of creative practice because I, I experienced it. What were some of the early things that you dealt with as executive director of Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts? So it's a host of things. It's contracts and copyright and trademark and disputes, not getting paid, nonprofit issues, nonprofit corporation, boards, straight up small business matters, tax. It's really the, it's the business side of a small business um, or the business side of a creative practice. And it's First Amendment. It's, it's the gamut. It runs everything. Not a lot of criminal, but there's been cases in the, in the past where we've had issues around, you know, criminal matters. But for the most part, it's small business. It's intellectual property. And you're working with artists. 70% of our clients are individual artists and about 30% are arts organizations, either startups or because most, most small arts organizations are really just individuals coming together for the most part. I'm always reticent to generalize because I think there's this perception that you know, artists aren't good business people. That has not been my experience. 
you know, and there's a sense of overgeneralizing is, is problematic. The approach is to take them where they're at and help them with a particular matter and try to support a practice, a sustainable practice. That's really the fundamental. So if you're a public artist and you get your first contract, that means you got a gig, you got a commission. So that's a, that's a sign or can be a sign of a practice that is, you know, evolving. So I don't think of them necessarily as bumps in the road. It's just, it's just part of running a creative practice. Some of them are indications of problems. Other ones are indications of growth and, and success. And are you working with all types of artists? Over the years, sure. Writers, designers, performers, musicians? Yeah, over the years, definitely. I think there are specialties in each of those areas, and there are lawyers that focus on different areas. What are some of the specialties for particular industries? Well, definitely music has its own. You know, there are a number of really good music lawyers in, in Boston, but obviously a ton of in New York and L.A. and across the country. So, you know, when you're dealing with subspecialties like music or film, even within film, regular kind of commercial films or documentary, there are lawyers that are specialists in each of those. So, Were there any court cases nationally that that you really paid attention to? Um, there's a case right now that right that's happening in the Capitol that the, the, there was a, a student piece of work that was taken down at the Capitol um, because the, there were some people that didn't like, some congressmen didn't like the fact that it was uh, politically charged that they felt. And so there's a case right now, and we, the Arts and Business Council here, signed on to an amicus brief with a number of other VLAs around the country. And yeah, some of these issues cross state lines, and some are very local, some are very personal. If you don't get paid for a piece of work that you sell, or if you're a designer, or a piece of public art, that that's very personal. That's that could be your rent. So you're at the VLA, and that's gone through some growth here in Boston. Yeah, the VLA merged. The VLA merged with the Arts and Business Council ten years ago, um, and now we offer HR services, legal services. We have a program called Business on Board, which is a program that's many many cities have it. It's where you train and place business people on boards to strengthen organizations through healthy, engaged boards. Yeah, we have two fellowship programs. Uh, Walter Feldman is a program where first time solo exhibition artists get. Uh, eight to nine months of support prior to their first solo exhibition. And we have a, a, a consultant that works with them to get them ready to create momentum. We have a program called the Creative Entrepreneurship Fellowship, which is 10 artists with a focus on artists of color, a similar type program. They get eight months of support, build their practice, and to kind of create a set of goals and, and, and move move and create momentum towards those towards those goals. We have about 300 lawyers that take cases from us on a regular basis. So it's private lawyers volunteering their time. So we're, we're a legal dating service. There's a lot of lawyers that are interested in the arts. There's a lot of lawyers that are working, you know, artists themselves, there are, that have kids, their partners that, have, that are artists. So there's a lot of lawyers who are very supportive of the arts, and it's a way for them to, to do pro bono work and meet interesting people and get interesting cases. So Have you made friends with any? You know, many of these folks I've known for you know, 20 years. So you have 300 in the, the queue? In 300, the but again, those are lawyers that, you know, if you have a case that's a litigation matter, then there's only a small pocket that are litigating. You know, so it, you have to have that many to cover the breadth of issues that can come up in a given... This is a really complicated matrix that I see where you have not only the 50 states that need to be covered because there's going to be different issues per state, but there's also different industries and then there's different disciplines, like one specializes in intellectual property, one specializes in, I don't know, entity formation. Right. Or, 
or something like that. Right. And or most, bankruptcy. Uh, yeah, and a lot of New England states don't have, you know, volunteer lawyers for its programs. So we get calls from mostly just mostly just Massachusetts and the surrounding states sometimes. Walk us through a day in the life of Jim. Yeah, so we created um, a shared office environment with with four nonprofit arts organizations in Boston, and so it's great. It's a great environment because we have you know th- three other service groups that are supporting the arts, sharing office together. What are those services? So groups? Mass Creative, Stage Source, and Mass Poetry, and the Arts and Business Council share a space at the Midway Artist Building uh, in South Boston. What all is happening in there? Well, each group is is a great group and a great group of partners, and they, you know, have a different focus, one advocacy, one performance, obviously poetry, and the Arts and Business Council is more kind of uh, business services. So uh, it's a great space. It's a 3,000-square-foot space in an old warehouse building, and it's a really nice place to work and nice people to work with. And, you know, in a given day, we have issues around volunteer lawyers for the arts that are coming in. We have you know, trainings that we do, we, we do about 40 business training classes a year, including business on board and the fellowship programs. What makes a good team? Well, the board for the Volunteer Lawyers for Arts was simple. It was all lawyers for the most part. The Arts and Business Council now has a mix of lawyers and CPAs and insurance, financial services, arts, kind of arts services folks. Um, so, I mean, ideally it would represent the community of both the community that we serve and also the community in a sense, we serve two communities. We serve the artist community and arts organizations and the business community. We are a resource to the business community. We're supposed to leverage the resources and engage the business community in support of the arts. One of the reasons why doing this podcast is that, for me, I believe that business principles and like practices have been unnecessarily siloed from artists and practitioners of the art. And, you know... Why do you think that still persists to a degree that it does? It's a great question. I mean, we do some workshops with the art, you know, art schools. I think it's part of the the issues of time. If you get a degree in the arts, it's not it's not required that you also get it's not required that you are also getting business classes. So if you're graduating from a business, if you're graduating from a, an arts college with an arts degree, it's very possible you graduate with no understanding of how to start, create, and sustain a thriving practice. That is more likely than not. Do you feel there's a maybe a better way that the art schools could be doing that? That's a hard one because there's a lot of opportunity to give them more services. And there's also a lot of MFA programs too. So you can graduate with an MFA as well. And so if we really want to have a more kind of equitable ecosystem for the arts, then it's not just people who went to college for art and also got MFAs for art. It's also self-taught and, and people developing their own their own practices. Part of the whole movement for a kind of artists thrive, which is the idea of a kind of a national movement to help artists thrive. And there's a great program supported by the Tremaine Foundation called Artists Thrive, um, and it's uh, artistthrive.org. People can check it out. And there's two rubrics that have been created to to help kind of a performance evaluation of of a thriving artist and also people who work with artists yeah i was i was part of the team that that uh, that drafted the first draft of it and now it's out to the community more and more folks really don't see this hard line between fine art and their life that actually it's becoming very integrated that 
art and design and performance and culturally like uh, influential objects that like it's it's really not on a wall or a museum or a pedestal or it's just really much imbued with our lives and what I'm wondering is if that fast forwards over time and more people want an artistic life and want more objects and services and products around them that kind of like are imbued with culture and art I'm wondering what is going to shift then with business the barriers to distribution have been cut down i mean the before there were gatekeepers in any major creative industry and you had to go through the gatekeeper whether it be publishing or music or film or or craft or you know fine art now the the consumer is directly linked to the maker in a much different way through i mean think of the transformation of etsy and other you know other platforms like that you know direct market maker to to buyer is obviously transformed not just the arts but has transformed all industry in that way so yes i think the evolution is and the ability to make something post it up have somebody find it buy it um is definitely easier you have you know small businesses that have merchant accounts and take credit cards and can sell directly to consumers and you know so you're already seeing it you've seen it last the explosion last 10 years music Think of, you know, the ability to post up your music, either SoundCloud or, or even podcasts like this. You can have direct access to people. They follow you and share you and social media to, to create fans that will appreciate and, and follow you. Absolutely. It's only going to, we're still probably only at the tip of it. To when I talk to folks who are just graduating today, they're actually very excited that it's so democratic now and that I would agree. it's so direct. Well, their social networks are also more developed. More right? robust. So, yeah, yeah, more robust. And you can have comfortable. You can have payment right in with your social media. Yeah, now. you can update people. I mean, I think we always talk about the idea of showing your work as it's made. You know, the, the practice of it. So now that's not. Um, it's not just an object. It's, you know, it has meaning to them. Whether they, because they bought it when they were on vacation, or they bought it someplace. You know, they bought it so that it, it's a touchstone for something else. And people, I think, are more sensitive to how things are sourced. Who makes them? The people behind it. We always say it's not about it's about the people that are making it. It's not about the product itself. They might make something else tomorrow, but if but if if we invest in the people, then then hopefully they can have a, a thriving practice. However defined by them, not not defined by me or defined by society. But what does success look like for you as the artist? This is from a visual artist. He graduated from SVA with his MFA a couple years back. His name is Mark Bradley Johnson. He's originally from Utah. And he was having his senior exhibition, and he exhibited a fridge, and inside the fridge were vials, and inside the vials were his sperm. And he had this in the gallery, and it was plugged in, And at one point, he posted on Craigslist that folks could come in and take the vials. And the gallery decided that it would not allow that. And so they wrapped up the fridge and took it out of the exhibition. So what are some of the things that Mark should have been thinking about? (laughs) That's a communication probably issue there a little bit. Maybe it came to him, you know, in real time. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe it was, maybe that was part of the, piece was that whole was that performance art in a sense right did it allow a conversation to be had who knows but yeah if you want something like that 
and you want the gallery not to do what they did, you probably have to get that approved beforehand. <laughs> you know, so and but I would say most galleries even today don't have you know don't have contracts. It's it's a relationship, and um, it's not uncommon for galleries to to sign artists for years and not have any contracts. I remember I was speaking with one of the, the best galleries in Seattle. He said, at the end of the day, if we can't trust each other, it really doesn't matter what that piece of paper says because one person will enforce it to the detriment of the other. But really what it needs to be is a handshake and a shared value. The contract is only of value if you can enforce it. You know, At the end of the day, if there's an issue, you still have to go back and treat the person with respect and try to figure out a solution in most galleries. But there's also a power differential there too. Another instance is an artist named Derek Erdman, and he is in Seattle, and he often pulls pranks to kind of hype what he's doing. And most of the pranks are pretty harmless. But for one of them, he wanted to have a screening of the movie Singles, and that was filmed in Seattle. It was about the grunge scene. And he decided he would screen it at the apartment complex where Singles was filmed, but he didn't get permission from them. He just said he was going to do it. And everyone in the building got very upset and was ready to barricade their own apartment complex. And at the last minute, he canceled. Um, but then people decided they were going to do it anyway, and he wasn't involved in that. And this sounds like my day. This sounds like really? this is my day. These are the these are the stories. These are the stories of my day. Yes. You know, in 20 years, let's say we probably get a thousand phone calls a year. So you take that times by 20 years. So it'd be, it would be, it, these stories don't surprise me. Let's put it that way. When does the prank go too far, though? I, because there is a prank and antics aspect to a lot of art. There's, people are trying to do something viral. They're trying to do something provocative. And they'll often flout a law um, or kind of cheekily go around it. <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, if a prank is made and no one's upset, I'll never hear. I'll never. I never find out about it. Yeah. So it's it's a problem only when it's a problem, and it's not funny only when it's not funny. It is. It's hard to. It's not obviously. It's not for me to judge any of it. Really, it's just to be supportive. And some would argue even bad publicity is good. So we we have a pretty strict rule of you know it's our not it's not our job to judge the work or judge the people. It's our job to take the situation as we get it and try to be supportive. People will come to me and they'll say. Hey, Lucas, uh, I really need to f start a 501c3. How do I do that? And my first question is, why do you want a 501c3? That's y You're going to have to go th through some work to get it. You're going to have to go through some work to keep it. Um, when is it actually worth doing that? And what are some of the alternatives like fiscal sponsorship? And yeah, it's a great question. We get That's one of our most popular questions that we get on a consistent basis. I think there's this, um, you want to you know, start a restaurant, run a marathon, write a book and you know, it's, it's on, it's on that bucket list in many ways. So we get that question a lot. We have been running a class every eight weeks for 15 years consistently, nonstop in collaboration with the lawyer's clearinghouse and a law firm in town called Goodwin Proctor. And, and we run this program because there's so much interest in learning about the pros and cons and when is it the right time. It's very, it's very personal and it's very dependent on them and the team and, and the model, quite frankly. So let's blow out what, what for-profit and non-profit means. Well, they're both, oftentimes they're both corporations. They're different, 
their different titles of corporations. And now, a corporation is a separate entity a from an individual. It's a separate legal entity. Yep. It's considered almost like a legal person in many ways. If you think of it that way, sometimes it's easier to conceive of it. So it's a separate corporation. One is a nonprofit. One's a for-profit. And then in the nonprofit space, there's usually one. And uh, there really aren't a lot of differences from an operating standpoint. The three major differences is one, at the end of the year, if you have profits, has to stay in the company. There's no dividends or shares that go out. Um, two, there are often political activity restrictions. Um, and, the th- and the third is that you have to have a mission that qualifies to be tax-exempt. So it has to be for charitable, religious, scientific, educational. You know, it has to fall within that limited number of activities. Is there anything else that you want to cover in this? Any other passion projects or? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that, that I'm seeing over time is is space. I think space is, is becoming even more of a critical issue in the arts, especially for small, mid-size arts organizations, individual creators, the idea of, you know, gentrification and finding safe, affordable space. There's always, unfortunately, tragedies like Oakland that happened, you know, and it highlights the idea that that there is a, a crisis of space, of, of safe, affordable space for people making it and the organizations that are serving communities. And as communities gentrify, some of the, the best programs are the nonprofits serving that community. And oftentimes space is an issue for them. And it's very critical in the arts, but not just the arts. I think it's, you know, it's a consequence of gentrification. So I do think that that is going to be a topic that you're going to hear more and more about. We're seeing more calls on this issue. We're seeing more organizations struggling with, with space, planning for it, it takes resources. It takes a, a board that can deal with it. It takes consulting and services. And I don't think that we're prepared yet to deal with the crisis of safe, affordable space, except maybe the institutional size groups that have the power to raise funds and do build-outs. I'm not talking about them, but everybody else, space is something that is an issue. It's, it's definitely an issue that requires collaboration, resources, long-term approach. We have a question from Axie, the editor here. What's the mindset of the the artist entrepreneur now compared to what it was in the 90s? I think there's a lot of similarities. You're still talking about individual creative professionals that have a passion for what they do and they're, they dedicate a lot of their time and energy to 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 creating the work that they love. So I don't I think there's always that that commonality over the years. Um, you know, smart, interesting, dedicated people especially with a lot of things to overcome, you know, and resources and everything else. So I don't think there's a consistent drive of the maker, of the creator, that has been consistent and probably has been consistent for obviously hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. So, but yeah, technology is definitely an interesting component, both on the business side and the production side and also the creative side. Well, wish you could ask a question. Well, of course, you can reach out to the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts or the Arts and Business Council chapters in your area, or you can also call into this show or text with questions. Just uh, dial this number, 978-712-8858. That number again is 978-712-8858. Or tweet or Instagram me at Mobile Incubator. Tune in next episode for an awesome Q&A with Daisy Chu and Charles James. They're the co-founders of Crimson Bikes in Cambridge, Mass., 
We've got some great questions from bike enthusiasts across the U.S. about being a neighborhood hub, sports apparel, selling to the never-been-sold-before, and other stuff like that. You can follow my travels on the mobileincubator.com and the Instagrams. Tune in for live stream workshops on Facebook and Periscope. And check out more podcasts, many, many, many more podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Our editor is Axie Berman. Our sound designer is Justin Klump of Podcast Music and Sound in Nashville. And our theme is by the very talented Otis McDonald. And this is Lucas Bivey wishing you lots of love from South Boston. Southie kid. I, you know, I think I need to do the lead out with some accordion music just to troll Jim. Troll him hard with this accordion music. And people, I think, are more sensitive to how things are sourced. Who makes them? The people behind it. We always say it's not about it's about the people that are making it. It's not about the product itself. They might make something else tomorrow, but if but if if we invest in the people, then then hopefully they can have a, a thriving practice. However defined by them, not not defined by me or defined by society, but what does success look like for you as the artist? <laughs>